The Courage to Grow is business. The Big Small Business Show made possible by MTN Business, a new world of business. And by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Lead your industry with a responsible partner. Partner with the CASA today. On the menu today, you cannot be afraid of that deal directive. In other words, I deserve the money back. I've worked damn hard. As Lois, I've got these people, I've worked hard, I've presented them to you, you've signed them, you're getting value from them. I deserve that back. That must have been very difficult. Very difficult because not only did I start on my own, literally start on my own, I didn't even have partners. You know, a funder, is, all funders are not equal. They all have different concentration on target markets, sectors, risk appetites, phases, the whole, the whole lot. Welcome to the Big Small Business Show. This show is for you, the entrepreneur, and we are coming to you from TBE, the Business Exchange. And that's quite appropriate because business is about an exchange. It's an, an exchange of value, it's an exchange of friendship, it's an exchange of uh, goods and services for money. But it's also about being flexible, about being in a space that's flexible because as an entrepreneur every day we get uh, thrown different curveballs and we have to be flexible in terms of uh, how we deal with that. Let's go meet our first guest. Welcome to the panel section of today's show. Now today we have uh, somebody very interesting in studio with us. Uh, actually, it's not in studio. We are actually at their offices. It is Lois Brighton. She's MD of Initiate International. Uh, this is a, a business that is uh, multifaceted. And uh, as a consequence, uh, there's lots going on in the business. And we're going to be talking about what the business does and what issues it might have. Welcome. Thanks. Right, so let's first un understand what the, the business does. Okay, sure. So we are first and foremost a recruitment business. Yeah. Um, we have three different kind of brands. So yeah. one is the main one, which is Initiate International. That focuses on digital tech and gaming recruitment. And then we have another brand, which is called Recruit for Languages, which we just recently launched. Um, and that specifically looks at recruiting foreign language speakers, both here in South Africa and globally. And then we have another really interesting business, which I'm quite excited about, um, called Initiate Remote. Um, so Initiate Remote is actually looking to especially look for people who can't necessarily work in an office, whether they've taken maternity leave and they don't want to go back into the rat race, or whether it's a disabled candidate who can't necessarily get into an office space, we make a virtual office for them. So we would plug them into our main business, Initiate International or Recruit for Languages, and they can work from home. You seem very excited about that. I watched your whole body language change yeah. around that. Why is that? Um, I think that it's going to enable people who traditionally haven't been able to go back into the workforce, whether that's women or disabled people or um, individuals who can't get to an office, whether it's because they're in a remote, remote location. I think that tech has enabled us to have people working from home anywhere in the world. Hmm. Is, is that, does that also extend to people who are um, doing project work at, at companies? Or, or is it more particularly full-time? It's really working for us as a business. So it's not working for our clients. It's oh, actually working for, for Initiate. So okay. we're actually recruiting people to actually work from home as recruiters. So as someone who's got maybe some experience in recruitment or HR previously, 
um, perhaps they've gone on maternity leave or perhaps they've had a disability that's you know come come on suddenly um, or you know whether they're living in a remote location as long as they have a working internet connection we can get them plugged into our main business because everything these days is cloud-based so I think we're moving away from that traditional office bound job mm. and moving into a new sphere of you know you can work anywhere whether that's the beach or Timbuktu so yeah so, so let's come back to the the first uh, uh, the Initiate International, mm. the first uh, thing you mentioned, which was digital tech and gaming. Yeah, gaming becoming a very big um, uh, part of a big industry, mm. uh, and uh, you know today, you know uh, the one thing I, I read recently was that many games were previously. Uh, created from movies and now mm. a lot of movies are being created from games. Games are becoming huge yeah. now today. We don't really deal with the gaming side from that perspective. I mean in South Africa it's more betting, gambling, um, sports book, so you know people who like to watch football and then put a bet on that football. Game. Yeah, so okay. which is huge in South is that Africa. Be betting? Is that betting? Would that be another word? Yeah, I suppose it? it's betting, betting. yeah, sports betting and gambling. Betting. Yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> <laughs> I see you just nicely packaged it. <laughs> of course. Game. Okay, so particularly in that industry. Okay, mm. okay, that's good to uh, clarify that. And then you spoke about digital and tech. What, 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 how do you differentiate between the two? So when I say digital and tech, obviously they are kind of interchangeable. But mm. I suppose we're thinking people who traditionally would have been classified as marketing people would be our digital people. Yes. And then tech would be people that be traditionally would have been IT. Okay. So, you know, it's moving with the times in terms of they are kind of getting interchangeable, but there are two quite specific areas of expertise, I think. And then let's just sort of get an understanding of the, the second part, which is a mm. recruit for, for languages. So just explain what it is and who typically would use, uh, require that. So um, South Africa is a really interesting country from a perspective of um, the BPO industry, which is business process outsourcing. Um, so you've got large organizations like, for example, Amazon, yes. um, which is a German business, um, and they would be looking for uh, to have a call center in this country because actually it's cheaper, we're on the same time zone. I mean, at the end of the day, you have people in their droves coming to Cape Town specifically to come and on holiday. And of course, they come and have a holiday and they don't want to leave. Mm. So there's a good opportunity to recruit foreign language speakers in business process outsourcing businesses in South Africa. And then from that, we've then built the business internationally. So I think, you know, we're in a global village these days. What I just talked about with regards to remote recruiting, mm. the same thing is right when it comes to people having businesses. You know, you can work anywhere in the world, um, but you're connected so intrinsically now by tech. So, you know, you might need a foreign language speaker in a country that traditionally would have just been, let's say, Spain, would only look for Spanish-speaking people, whereas now they might have businesses where they need French, Italian, German, Hebrew, Arabic. Um, you even get people asking for Australian speakers, and you say, what do you need an Australian speaker for? They're English-speaking, but they want someone with a native tongue, you know, that has the colloquial language or speaks in the accent. So we get requests for... American speakers, Australian speakers, Canadian speakers, native British speakers like myself. So and it's on a global basis. So it's a really interesting business as well. Just coming back now, moving from what the business does to you, mm. to you, your MDO of the business, it sounds like you're all over, like literally all over the place, yeah. like physically, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like you're traveling a lot, yeah, right? Exactly. Um, and just, just give me an, uh, an understanding of the extent to which you, you travel. 
Um, so mainly Europe and UK at the moment. So Recruit for Languages is actually based in the Czech Republic. Yes. Um, again, it's very similar to South Africa. Um, you know, it's come out of an interesting period in the last sort of 20 or 30 years. Um, so it is cheaper to hire people in those regions, the same as South Africa, mm. but it's on the same time zone as Europe. And there's lots of foreign language people based in in Prague. So in a typical month, how, how many, uh, um, how often are you traveling? It kind of goes in waves. I'd say every six weeks I'm out of the country. Okay. Um, and then uh, probably every month I'm traveling down to Cape Town, which is where we have another office. You have another office there. Yeah. Okay. All right. And, and to, to the, the, the travel, is that an issue? Have you got a team within the organization that manages the business day to day? Yeah, I have. I think, you know, there's always going to be um, constraints of not being physically in an office. Yes. Um, but this is why one of the reasons I came up with Initiate Remote, because I thought, well, actually, people don't need micromanaging. I think we're moving away from that kind of management kind of structure that might have you know, been in force the last couple of decades, maybe. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, it is difficult, but I've got really good people in my team. So, and I've nurtured people from kind of junior level. I mean, one of my, my staff members, I just promoted to director two weeks ago, and she joined me six years ago as a sort of junior recruiter. So we've got really good training and development inside our business to enable me to build a really strong core team. We, we're going to have to take a, a break now. When we are back, we're going to continue with the conversation and particularly try and understand the two or three main issues that the business is experiencing right now. in studio actually we're not in studio we are in I keep making that mistake because I'm so used to being in studio we are at the premises of Lois Bright's uh, business called initiate uh, in, initiate international is that right yeah <laughs> she's the MD and she's been talking to us about her business her business really is made up of three components or two components the a third part which is really exciting her the first part is uh, the, the the let's call it a general um, recruitment business but specifically focused on the gaming industry industry which is really betting okay gambling <laughs> um, and then tech and digital that's the one part and the second part which is very very interesting is about rec recruiting for languages which is really a thing a fascinating thing um, specifically for the business process outsourcing industry where people are looking for specific languages or even um, uh, accents uh, that uh, are required within a call center environment, um, and uh, the third, the third part now, which is which is particularly excited about, is uh, the, the the business called remote. It's called remote. Initiate remote. Initiate remote. Yeah. And that is by using people who are either just um, moms who want to stay at home, who've been in the industry, or people with disabilities who've been in the industry, who now can plug into the system and partake in the, this industry from the comfort of their own home. Right, let's talk about some of the, the issues that you're having. Mm. Uh, and let's focus maybe on three of the main issues okay. in the business right now. Yeah. 
stop number one? Cash flow. <laughs> yeah, it has to be cash flow. We've we've obviously it's a small business with yeah. no kind of capital injection from a investor. Yeah. Um, you know, you're you're basically uh, relying on your clients paying on time to enable your business to carry on running. So um, I think we um, we've had some interesting clients. Sometimes the clients you think will be the best, um, you know, the best payers aren't. Um, so you'll sign with them on 30 days and obviously you're, you're managing your cash flow by the time they're supposed to have paid you. Um, and sometimes you can go to sort of 90 days when they're supposed to have paid within 30 days. And internally, do you have a process where there's somebody specifically focused on collecting money? Yes, we do. Um, but we don't want to be that kind of aggressive business. You know, we're a small organization. And um, I think if you go too aggressively in chasing for money, I think you can risk losing or, or damaging the relationship. So, you know, our, our recruitment's all about relationships. Mm. Um, so I think if you were to go down the route of pushing them too hard on the, the payment side, you might then mm. forego, you know, millions of rounds worth of business, future business. So, and and do, you, do you have bad debt in that space? Do you have bad um, debt in the business? Do people we, not pay? Yeah, you do, have, you do have clients that just don't pay. Um, so, which, you know, is a risk you take, because I think with recruitment, we always say it's 100% on risk. Because, you know, you take, unless you're doing retained work, which I did a lot of retained work when I was working in the UK, but unfortunately the market here in South Africa isn't, it's quite green. Mm -hmm. So there isn't really that kind of focus on doing retained work, which is obviously where you get paid up front. Mm. Um, so I think without having the sort of, um, you know, the comfort blanket of having retained work, you are working 100% on risk in recruitment. So until you actually have the person starting and you can invoice the client, you know, you've done all this work, but you don't actually know if you can get paid yet. So it's, I think that's probably why cash flow is a big yeah. issue. And then you've got the, the other issue, which is that all the work happens up front there, yeah. and then you pay, wait for the 30 or 60 days exactly. or 90 days yeah, afterwards. Exactly. So that, that can be 150 days from yeah. beginning to end. Yeah, so you've got to be kind of, um, you can't be risk averse in recruitment. So, um, you know, you, it, is, it is a risky business to work in. So I often hear of people starting up recruitment businesses and I think, I wonder how long it's going to last, you know, because it's, it's difficult. And I, when I speak to other people, I mean, I've got a big forum of recruiters that I deal with that are recruitment, mm. um, recruitment owners. Um, and we have like almost like a forum where we can sort of share knowledge and skills and help and things. And the number one thing is clients not paying. So it's let, not just let, us. <laughs> let's, let's, let's move to number two, mm -hmm. the second issue. Um, I think, you know, management of salespeople is difficult. Um, mm. As recruiters, you know, people often forget that we're actually salespeople. Mm. Um, you know, um, people often say we're the modern day sell, uh, uh, slave trade, <coughs> which I don't really like. Mm. But, um, you know, essentially we are, we are selling people. And I've always mm. said this, and this is something I, I've still used to this day as an analogy. You know, if I'm selling um, a laptop, for example, um, when I go to bed at night, the next morning when I wake up, the laptop is still the same thing. Mm. With a person, every sort of second, minute, hour, you know, day, week, month, et cetera, et cetera, that goes on, that person changes. You know, mm. your product changes overnight. You have no ability to sort of rein that product in. Mm. Whereas if it's a tangible product like a, a laptop or a pen or a phone, you know, you know what your product is every day. It doesn't mm. change. Mm. So you do have... Yeah, I think you do have um, a struggle to then manage people who are then managing people, if that mm. makes sense. So mm. you're, what you're selling is not sort of, it changes every day. So managing people in recruitment industry is quite difficult. Um, and finally, the third, the yeah. third issue? Um, the third one's probably, I mean, losing sight of what you're actually doing it for. Because I think when you're running a small organization like mm. we are, um, you know, you can quickly lose sight in, you know, getting involved in operational things or chasing money or... 
um, you know, going off to see, you know, going off to see clients who turn into nothing. You know, there's there's lots of things you can end up sort of going down, lots of uh, rabbit holes, as it were. Um, and then you kind of lose sight of what you're doing it for. And, you know, we're quite passionate. We've just launched this campaign called Initiate Change. It's obviously a spin on our name, um, but um, we're trying to change. You know, and it was, it was really interesting that we came up with this campaign and it was a week after, well, we came up with the campaign and then we didn't launch until a week after Cyril Ramaphosa came into power. So it was really pertinent that we actually ended up being able to launch this campaign of Initiate Change around a time that I think is really exciting to be in South Africa. But... You know, you can get really um, drawn into doing all these things and actually the main thing you need to be doing is recruiting or, you know, working out what you're actually doing in terms of moving the business forward. So, yeah. Just in, in a quickly, do you, mm. why are you doing what you're doing? I love recruitment. It's in my blood. I mean, I fell into recruitment. My first job out of university was working for Barclays Wealth in the UK. And I think probably by about day three, I thought this is not for me. But of course, you know, you don't know where to go. You're a graduate. You don't really have experience of the job market. So I went to go and see a graduate recruiter. And the first thing they said to me is, have you thought about recruitment? And that's the last thing I remember. And now I'm still here 15 years later. So I love recruitment. And I'm very passionate about South Africa. People often ask me, would you ever go back to the UK? And I've been back for a year in between in my 11 years here. Um, and I just, I think it gets into your, it gets into your blood. And I, I love it. You know, and I feel like you really have, a, you can make a really big impact in society through enabling workforce placements. We're going to have to leave uh, the segment here. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, I'm going to give some of my thoughts in terms of those three issues that Lois is experiencing. We are at the offices, uh, there we are, I got it right, we are not in studio, we are at the offices of Lois Bright, MD of Initiate International. Uh, before the break we were talking about the three main issues that uh, the business was experiencing, namely uh, number one uh, was lack of direction, or that was actually number three, number two was sort of the management structures, uh, and number, number three was the, is the cash flow. And I want to just approach that in, in that way. First of all, I really appreciate um, the, the candor and the, the authentic pain around losing direction because many entrepreneurs actually experience that. Mm -hmm. I've been doing what I do, you've been doing it for 11 years, I've been doing it for 18 years. I have a very strong mission and yet some days I wake up not, not remembering why I do what I do. Yeah. And you have to create, in, in what, what I've done very deliberately and what I've uh, when I speak to entrepreneurs, to create this deliberate place where you have that time for reflection. So a little trick that I learned actually from a big corporate was a concept called 12 plus 1. And 12 plus 1 means on the 13th week, in other words, once a quarter, you work with your team uh, in terms of where you've, where you've come from in terms of the last quarter, talking about the targets and where you're going to. Part of what, what is embedded in every 12 plus 1 is why we do what we do. And you go and you talk, keep talking about that because if you stop talking about it, it actually does start to evaporate out of your mind. So whether you use that or you use other mechanisms, what I think the message is that you need to be deliberate about it. It needs to be uh, rhythmic in, in the business where it's embedded in a process not just how you feel every day. Because when I ask you, you know, once again, I, I read you, you lighten up and like, I'm in, I love this, I, I love this stuff, you know, and, and you're very passionate about it. And 
it's very hard when you have got a cash flow issue and you're thinking about how am I going to pay salaries and, mm -hmm. and rent to be thinking about th that why. Mm -hmm. So I'd say that that is uh, number one. Number two related to that, and, and I'm, I'm very cautious in saying this because I don't know enough, but I, I want to put it out there for you to reflect on, is the concept of focus. Because if, what it feels like for me, it just listening, in, and I've only had a few minutes with you, mm. but listening is that you, there is a, an ability to have a new shiny thing, okay, and that becomes the, the thing. Mm. And then the, this other old thing here is like left behind. And I think that also dovetails into the, the, one of the management issues. But let's just talk about that as well. I, I, I relate to that as well. I, I absolutely relate to the new shiny thing and many of the entrepreneurs that I work with have that same syndrome, the new shiny thing. Part of it is a fear thing, in other words, like that's not working, let's try this, let's try this. Part of it is that I'm bored with that and we, we're great initiators which is, mm -hmm. and we're very bad follow-throughers. Mm -hmm. So for me, what's important coming back to the management structure is that you, you actually ensure that you have somebody in your team who's a follow-thrower, somebody who is that disciplined that closes those loops. Now, I have in my team, I have three follow-throughers because I can initiate so much and they will vomit on, on what I can produce. So to, to me, it's a make, making sure that those people are in place. Let's go to the management structure next. That to me is, is very important from that, 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 that your role is to design and manage by exception, design and manage that by exception, okay. Um, and I just, I want to come back to that just, just now, now because I, I'll be running out of time, I want to get to the third point in, which is the cash flow. The concept is dual directive, okay. The, the, that's the big word, dual directive. You create value for a client, you deserve money back. Do you have in your head a power differential, I will lose that. Don't, that is, is exactly what is holding you back. So other than the, let's call it the technical stuff, which is you've got a credit department, there's credit vetting, and if there are people calling that are separate to you, mm -hmm. okay, we, that's the separation, it's not you calling, it's them calling. You cannot be afraid of that deal directive. In other words, I deserve the money back. I worked damn hard as low as I've got these people, I worked hard, I've presented them to you, you've signed them, you're getting value from them, I deserve that back. When you get that honesty in the back of your mind that you deserve it, you don't have problem looking for, for the cash. I'm not saying you come in hard, I'm just saying that you come in confident that you deserve it and that, that will change that, that number. Mm -hmm. The other technical piece is to look at your debtor's days and every month in terms of your management pack, look at your debtor's days. Anything over 45 days, debtor's days, should be red flagged and should upset you mm -hmm. because you should be asking yourself that your directive is not in place. I'm adding value, I'm not getting value back. Let's come back to, to the, um, the, the, the management thing. Because you're flying around, you've got to have strategic management in place, not just um, a management in place. So I'm going to take four, th four things here, and, and we've only got two minutes left, so I'm going to rush through them. The first point you have to do is you, as Lois, have to design the future that you want. Okay? And then you have to express that and communicate to that team. You have to understand how they dovetail into that, what do they want, and get that meshed, that future that you both want. But you are the initiator, you, this is your business, and you need to be, have the dominant 
thought there. The second thing is to design, is sort of capacitate that design with high quality people and resources. And that you're going to be a trial and error. You're going to try this, it didn't work, try this and that works, etc. And have the courage to actually let go of people who are not actually the quality that you require. That's far harder to do than, than to say. The third thing is to hand over uh, the, the, those processes um, and uh, to hand over those processes one at a time. Not abdicate, okay, but delegate. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole process around that. And then the last part is then to step in and capacitate where there is capacity requirements, but don't stay there for long. Because what we do is we go in, we're so good at it, and then we forget to step out and recapacitate it. So what you'll find is that you are sitting both in a very tactical space and a very strategic space, and you're spending too much time in a tactical space because you're not releasing in the right way. That's the general framework. We don't have time for me to expound on that, but that, if you just watch this again and go through those four points, mm -hmm. uh, I think it will give you a sense of how to, to be strategic and have a strategic management team in place that can do that as well. Okay. It was a new client that said to me, what were you thinking? <laughs> and I said, oh, I didn't think about it. This is the Big Small Business Show and this is our Psyche of Success slot where we talk to individuals, entrepreneurs, professionals that have gone through their journey. Sometimes uh, it's a very difficult journey turning out to be good. Sometimes it's an easy journey turning out to be difficult. I'm very excited today to have Belinda Mapongwana who is uh, an attorney, is that right? Yes. An attorney at uh, uh, Mapongwana attorneys and uh, her story is a particularly interesting story because she starts off in Guguletu. You get, you're born in Guguletu, you grow up in Kailija. So what made you become a, a lawyer? It was a childhood dream. Um, I remember when I was four years old, people would ask me what I wanted to be and I would just say that I was a lawyer. And the next question was, did you grow up with lawyers around you? Yeah. And the answer is no. I think I'm the first lawyer in my family. Um, there were no lawyers even around me, except later on when Bulelani Ngoka came to live in our neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't from Cape Town. He came to live in Cape Town. Um, like it's just something I wanted to do. So how do you go to, you go to study at uh, UCT? Correct. Okay. Yes. How do you afford the, the, the fees? Actually, I, I wasn't accepted at UCT off the bat. So I graduated with great results. I wasn't accepted at UCT. Mm. And then I went to do my plan B. Mm -hmm. um, and then I came back to UCT in 1995. And I always think that that is significant because that was post, you know, that was the democracy. Mm. Um, I, go, I got a, a scholarship. Um, I, I think the finances were a challenge as they were for a lot of, a number of black, um, black students, particularly for me because I was coming from a single, um, a single person household. Mm -hmm. um, a mother? A mother, yes. Mm. So I, I got a scholarship, I applied for a scholarship, I think I got the Rhodes Scholarship, and I was also on NFSS for most of my time at UCT. 
So now you become a, a, a lawyer, you graduate, and then what? You go to work at a big one of the big firms? I, I, so I, we are all like scrambling, applying for articles, and then the big firms actually come to UCT, and they interview us at UCT, and I was offered a, a, you know, a position at Bowman's. Mm -hmm. um, I had already decided that I don't want to be in Cape Town, so that, was, that offer came, at, you know, it met that, um, that wish of being outside of Cape Town. Born in Cape Town, studied in Cape Town, I think I, I needed a change. Mm. Also, I think deep down I knew that Cape Town was a bit too small to meet this dream that I have for myself. And when I got to Joburg, it felt right. I felt like this is the place I needed to be. So you in the big law, law firm for how many years? So I'm in the big firm. I need to tell you this story alone. I'm in the big firm for six months. Uh -huh. And then I get a scholarship to go and do a master's in Amsterdam. Uh -huh. And everyone is thinking that I'm not serious about my career because I've got a year and a half to go. So articles are two years mm -hmm. and six months into it, I'm seen as a bit like not serious about my career. But that was probably the best decision I made for myself. Why? Because my mind opened up so much. Um, it was my first time ever in a plane outside of the country. Mm -hmm. um, and I met people from all around the world, some of them still friends today. And I think once my mind expanded, it was difficult for it to, to be the same again. Did you have to come complete your, the new articles after that? I had to. I had to come and complete my articles. But obviously now it was a bit of a difficult transition because all my peers were now associates. So effectively they could tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they could tell me to go and deliver things for them. Yeah. Um, and and we, you had to, you know, law is a very hierarchical profession. So the transition was a bit, um, a bit of a challenge, but I, I received a lot of support from my partners, mm -hmm. uh, from one of the partners who said to me that I need to keep my head down and, and, and focus. And, and, and I had done great things when I was overseas. I had also done an internship with the United Nations. And then I had to come to a small office I, you know, I wasn't in a big United Nations office anymore. I was in a small cubicle finishing what I started. I think that was important, yeah. And then you decide, fast forward, to go on your own. You come from this big brand behind you, standing behind you, and to start basically on your own. Yes. That must have been very difficult. Very difficult because not only did I start on my own, literally start on my own, I didn't even have partners. And I wasn't coming from a law firm, so I didn't have a, you know, a client that said, we will follow you, or a number of clients that said, we will follow you. It was a new client that said to me, what were you thinking? <laughs> and I said, oh, I didn't think about it. I didn't think that I couldn't get a client. I had the confidence that I could get a client and I could, you know, I could make it work. So you make your business cards, you, 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 do you have a website at that point? You, I, did have, you have every... I have, I, I, I started my office in Santon. Yeah. Um, I had a business card, I had a website, I had all the things, you know, that um, I felt were required to be professional. I was in the right place, I had the right card, um, and I thought I had the right attitude and for me that was very important mm. yeah but it wasn't all that was needed you know a fancy website and a card is not gonna 
um, bring the clients to you. The clients need to feel that they can trust you. Mm. And that was one of the biggest challenges for me to get my clients to trust me. And I, and I always make the example of saying, the clients that I used to have at the big firms were the big, were the big clients. They obviously now were not comfortable to use me. Mm. And then the clients that could, that could afford me thought they didn't need me because the SMMEs thought, why would you need a lawyer? You know, until you actually you know, um, are facing a problem, the SMMEs will probably only go to a lawyer when necessary. So I think I found myself in a very difficult spot. So you started to build, you're now three people, you're taking on another two, two like, soon, yes. a VAC job, now, but you've got three people in your, your business right now, and I'm calling it a business. <laughs> but if there was somebody out there now, some young professional who is leaving, whether it's an accounting professional or an auditing professional or legal or medical, whatever the case may be, who was leaving big name yeah. brand and trying to do it on their own. And they're in that dark, dark moment yeah. where they, they've just got everything, they've jumped, and now they realize they've jumped. Yes. And, and they're starting to think, maybe I've made a mistake because the clients aren't knocking down the doors. What advice would you give to them? I would say you need to find like-minded people. You need to find people who are in the same position as you. You, you. you must limit your time with the people who, are, who were your friends in the law firms because they have the security that you don't have because mm. you are now on your own. Um, that was my lesson for the first year is to first accept. Acceptance is key. Accept that you've made this decision. You have to make it work. What the... Other thing that happened to me in that first year going towards the second year is that a friend of mine said to me, have you heard of RaiseCorp? And I said, no. And she, she explained RaiseCorp to me and I called RaiseCorp and I, and I was asked to come in for an interview to basically motivate why I, my business needed to be part of this incubation program. And then I got into that and I found like-minded people. I was now surrounded by entrepreneurs. And then I felt like I wasn't on my, on, on, on my own. It, mm. it, it was less intimidating because people would share their own stories mm. and that made me feel not alone. Of course, I was the only law firm mm. in my group, but I also actually got clients from that group mm. because people would then say, oh, we've had this legal challenge, we just didn't even know who to approach. And I, I think it came at the right time. Yeah. Last quick question. If you... I have to do it again, would you, would you go on your own again? No. <laughs> um, yes, yes, yes. I, let me tell you why, Aaron, because I don't think even an MBA can teach me what I've learned in the four years. Hmm. I think it will only enhance this experience, but the life lessons, you know, the lessons of who I am hmm. um, have, you know, have, is what I can take from this journey of four years. So I wouldn't change it um, for the world. I would do it again. I would just do it better with more money. <laughs> wouldn't we all? Belinda, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing your journey uh, with us. I think it's very important that uh, entrepreneurs out there understand that it's not uh, all uh, 
uh, roses uh, out there and that, that we all have our tough times. Absolutely. And, but, but at the end of the day, it's all worth it. Thank you. Indeed. Thank you very much. Do stay tuned for what's coming up next on the show. If you're looking for equity, don't approach someone that does debt. If you're looking for working capital, don't approach someone that does private equity, as an example. Welcome back. I wonder why they always say a warm welcome back. You've gone nowhere. Welcome back to us. Welcome back to Kumaran Pariachi, who is our finance guru, and myself, who are going to be talking to you today about funding. We continue our series on funding for small businesses, and today we're going to talk about something that's very, very important, and in fact, probably one of the most important parts of uh, getting your funding and that's to align your expectations with the funder. The funder and the fundee, the person who's borrowing the money, need to make sure that they are on the same page. And too often as businesses when we go out to try and get funding, we're so desperate to get the funding that we forget to qualify certain conditions and uh, that in the end results in some nasty outcomes. So welcome back, a warm welcome to you. Let's, let's talk about um, expectations of, of the parties. Um, so where, where should we start? So if I'm, a if, I'm, uh, if I'm the fundee, if I'm looking for the money, what should I be expecting? So before expecting, before expecting means what you're expecting from another party. I think yes. is to analyze yourself first, knowing yourself. So often this, fund, this expectation gap is because there's not a fit or one hasn't researched the party they're talking to. Mm. So in order to know the fit, you need to know about yourself first, yourself, your company, all those types of things, as well as what the funders' requirements are. So I would say be alive and be mature to your risk, your, so we're going to talk about all these elements now, mm. your risk, your, the stage your business is at, all these types of things, be real to that, and then research very, very well all the different funders and what their specific criteria are. You know, a funder, is, all funders are not equal. They all have different concentration on target markets, sectors, risk appetites, phases, the whole, the whole lot. You know, all, all funders are not the same. So, so let's, let, let's start with, with stage, because if I'm in a startup phase and I'm looking for a startup capital, it's very different for a management buyout when I'm much bigger and I'm looking for MBO cash. And it's very different if I'm looking to borrow some money to buy that big capital equipment. Right? Exactly. So, 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 uh, so what you're saying to me is that there are different people that, that specialize in those different areas and I should rather understand what I want and then go to them at that stage. And understand what they do. So now you're on fit. Fit is something that on both parties, right? Yeah. So if you're looking for equity, don't approach someone that does debt. If you're looking for working capital, don't approach someone that does private equity as an example. Mm. If you're early stage, don't, don't you get the idea. So it's on both sides that this is 
this understanding is needed. You've got to understand their requirements as well as yours. So we've spoken about stage now, and so what, have we covered stage? No, we haven't. No, no, that was still, this is still cursory for right. me. So, so on stage, uh, let's talk about expectation relation to stage. Often you'll find someone in the startup phase, that's the most difficult phase to get funding, mm -hmm. and one should have that expectation. I'm at a startup phase, I have not proved my concept, I have not got any track record to show, so 99% of funders are dealing with more companies at an advanced stage. So all of those companies are almost out of reach for you if you are just, just starting up. So that's the wrong expectation to go knocking so, on those so doors. So where do I get my money if I'm just starting up? So when you're starting friends, up... Friends, Fools, Family and who else? Well, Friends, Fools, Family, yeah. uh, customers, the way you engineer your working capital cycle and your astuteness to which you negotiate, you may convince them to give you a deposit up front to pay you a bit early, all these different little things. You may convince your suppliers to give you a little bit of extra terms. Shrewdness of negotiation on those two sides reduces the amount you need. And then, you know, you, you sell your house, you get family, friends and fools, like you said. These are the early things you do at that stage. Then only can you advance to the next stage. And if your business is in a model where it requires a venture capitalist, then you can only go, even only after then. You okay. can't approach them until you've shown something. Mm. So I think to expect all these normal funders to fund you when you're at this elementary stage, there's an expectation gap. Yes. And then... And that's often what we hear, oh, that no one wants to fund us, but we're not actually going A to the right people, or we're not actually presenting ourselves in a way that's compelling to those people. Right. Yes, very true. Let's take another stage. Let's take the business is more established now, let's say four or five years old. It's beyond surviving. It's making some profits, rocking and rolling. It's even funded by a bank, maybe an overdraft or something like that. But now it's on a growth phase because there's something happening in this industry. It's in a little bit of a growth phase. And, you know, a normal traditional bank won't fund you for the growth phase. You need alternative funders. Maybe you need a private equity funder. So you need to look at either different types of instruments like debt or equity beyond a traditional bank because they won't fund you for growth. Let's move on to the next thing, uh, industry uh, being certain funders are, are understand certain industries better than others. Mm. Let me take <coughs> a prime example. Let's take agriculture. I'm not talking about agro-processing. I'm talking about agriculture, the whole traditional farming. That has a particular working capital cycle because you plant these seeds it takes a long time there's like no revenue for many many months until you harvest and so to speak so that the dynamics in the agricultural sector is very peculiar and difficult to fund for normal funders that's why the world over you have agri type of funders in south africa we have you know uh, the land bank you have these co-op funders there's a few speciality funders that are government owned and non-government owned that only do agriculture that's it Okay. And, and likewise, you can get, you know, get some funders that have appetite only for tech. And why this is important is that if your sector has a particular nuance or risk that is difficult for a normal funder to understand, a specialist funder has already been through that curve. They have an appetite and a comfort to understand the dynamics of a farming sector or the IT sector and then they, they know what's going on there and their, their funding can be aligned to that. So there's a better fit again. So again, I wouldn't go and waste my time if I'm a farming business applying to traditional funders. Let's move on now because we, we're running out of time. The size, the size of the, um, the, the amount of money you want, whether it's uh, 500,000 or, or 50 million, also is, is a different. And of course, that, 
And that's not necessarily around stage as well, because sometimes you might be a startup might require 50 million, and sometimes it's a, a more mature business. Yes. So again, this is largely dependent on the on the funders. This part is about understanding for expectation management, because all funders will generally they will openly declare on their website what their minimum and their maximum is. So again, if you're applying to them outside of that maximum, it's 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 or minimum, it's not viable for them. Uh, if you're wanting, you know, let's say a hundred thousand rand loan. Uh, there are a lot of players that specialize in that small amount that have the, uh, the efficient processes to do that quickly. Where some funders can't get out of bed less than a million rand because their processes are too, are too intense you know, to justify them looking at a small amount. So the size of this is often a big frustration for SMEs trying to get funding, but the problem is easily solved if they just read the funder's website and ask some opening questions uh, from the... Last question, Kumar, is around different types of, of uh, funding in, t in terms of whether you want equity or mm. debt type of funding. We've got a minute left. Just talk about that. So the two big categories are equity or debt. Yeah. If you want equity, it's like a one-night relationship, a meaningful overnight relationship in the sense that it's more transactional, right? You, you mean debt? Debt. Did yeah. I say equity? You said equity. Sorry. Debt, meaningful overnight relationship. Meaningful overnight relationship. In other words, it's very transactional. They lend the money and, and that's it. Whereas in equity, they're a partner in your business. Yeah. So the timeline to assess is much longer. The expectations for their involvement and the con is vastly different things. This is a marriage versus yes. a meaningful overnight relationship. So you can just use that analogy to imagine what it takes. I know you cut me with a minute, so that's why I kept it. I want to talk about another time about this, this concept of mezzanine finance as sure. well and what that means because we often hear it and I hear different interpretations of it. And I just want to put out there some, some clarity about what mezzanine finance actually means. Now. No, not now. <laughs> well, that's it uh, for today's show. Thanks, Kamaran. We will get you back for uh, mezzanine finance to try and unpack that. That's uh, it for today's show. Do stay tuned for some of my reflections on the entrepreneurial journey. Well, it's time for my reflections for today. And today I want to take my reflections from my interview with uh, Belinda. I thought uh, it was quite uh, an interesting uh, journey that she had and, and a very brave one at that. Jumping out of uh, the comfort of a big corporate environment and going on your own and there was a particular statement that she made which was that you know I always believed I would find my clients I always believed I didn't have a client but I believed I would now if you've been watching the show over the last couple of years I've spoken about the five conditions required for an entrepreneur to precipitate one of them is your belief in your ability to master resources not your ability to master resources your belief in your ability to master resources and we saw that with Belinda we saw that, that she believed she, she would find her clients. So three points really here. Number one is it's very important as an entrepreneur to, to, to be absolutely obsessed about believing in yourself and just find all the ways that you can believe in yourself. The, sec the second thing, which is not the same as believing in yourself, is actually backing yourself. And that's when you, okay, I believe I can do it, but backing yourself is actually the action, is the doing piece. And the third point, 
which she pointed out, which she put into her, her, her situation, was that she surrounded herself with other people who would believe and support her, believe in her and support her. And that's an important part. So it's just not about believing in yourself. It's about backing yourself, which is doing, and surrounding yourself with people, particularly in those dark, dark days who are going to push you through. That's it for my reflections for today. Do remember, if you think it, write it down and make it a reality. The Big Small Business Show is brought to you by Chartered Accountants of South Africa. Transform the future of your business. Partner with the CASA today. And the courage to grow is business. MTN Business. A new world of business.